listen, you didn't say we have, we're going to get vulnerable in this podcast. If that's Come the on, case, I would have asked for fee. Come on, man. But, um... <laughs> oh, is that, that coming for <laughs> come charge? <laughs> yeah, exploiting people's emotions for content. Manipulative behaviour. What is going I'm on ask, I'm just asking questions. Um... Simeon Brown, um, we work together at Channel 4 News. You've been there now, what, eight years? Yeah, man, I've been eight there a long time. Yeah, man, some would say too long. But too long, man. I've got, listen, I'm practically like, you know what I mean? Testimonial coming up soon. Listen, for you. I'm going to have my 10 years soon. Listen, I expect to see a gold watch or something, whatever it is that you get. No, you got to do more than 10 as years. You, as you approach retirement. you got to do more than 10 years for a gold watch, bro. Come on. <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> take silver. You get a dinner. You get a dinner. A nice fancy dinner. <laughs> um, your eight years at Channel 4 News. You've covered in the main, I would say, social affairs as well as many cultural stories. But what do you think, as a journalist to Channel 4 News, your your journalism has impacted? The stuff that you've covered and done, what would you say your work has, has impacted and who has it impacted? It's a very broad question very for like, broad. I don't know, 9 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who are you trying to impact? Probably a better question. I if, let me let me answer a different question. <laughs> so, is that how we're starting? <laughs> yeah, just dismissing my question and asking yourself your I own would, questions. Is that what you're doing? I don't know. I would I would say that at Channel Four News, I've covered a variety of different things with different slants, with different perspectives, with different kind of outcomes and I guess intentions. So there are pieces which I've covered, which were driven by trying to, I guess, capture an injustice and you want some kind of action or some kind of response. So, for example, I did a piece on a young man who went to a BLM protest and then he was attacked by some racist far-right protesters. Mm. And then he turned to the police whilst bleeding and then he found himself in cuffs and stops and searched. And effectively, in addition to highlighting how black people are kind of over-policed as suspects but under-policed um, as victims and then trying to get some kind of response in regards to investigating that inequality, that was really the outcome. You're asking the institution, is what you did okay? Does this need to be investigated? Was there a breach of, of the duties of care that were offered to this teenage boy? So that's a very particular of outcome and from that piece there was an investigation so to speak uh, i did a piece with a producer a journalist called zara and that was on looking at cctv and how it's used in the criminal justice system recently and all the concerns that 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 the way that it's currently presented can lead to miscarriages of justice that's a very clear kind of concern trying to reckon trying to reconcile a failure in that system whilst at the same time you know i've, I've done other pieces like uh, I did a piece years ago where I was trying to highlight, I guess, the way that politicians conduct themselves and to highlight how absurd it is. Um, 
and then bringing together two, I guess, cultures which are seen as opposed, but actually are part of the same thing. So it was taking the quotes that are usually given to Sunday newspapers, the political quotes, which are always, they're always historically very gruesome. I'm going to stab this person in their back. They're dead, dead man walk. It all very, it's all very violent language. And at the same time, there was all this kind of pearl clutching about drill music and the like, language being violent. And I said, okay, well, why don't we make a drill song out of these MPs' quotes that they always feed to the Sunday paper, mm. a particular political journalist in particular, who will literally put anything on the front cover of his newspaper, any tits or tattle, anything that sounds aggressive. Um, and let's turn it into a drill track. And then you do that and then you highlight the inequality. You highlight just how you highlight the level of political discourse in this country. And it was to really say, look how absurd these politicians are about how we accept these norms. And so it's like every piece has a different, I guess, trajectory. Um, so when you say, especially to somebody who's generally a generalist, and largely covers lots of different things, it's like the intentions and the ambitions and the trajectory differs. But I guess largely you're trying to well, I'm trying to capture things or important things which have some kind of meaning and speak to this particular moment in time and tell us something about it. So why do you think you'd be you'd have been able to have covered a lot of those stories in a different newsroom? We work at Channel 4 News. What is it about Channel 4 News that you think enables you or empowers you if indeed those it does those two things? to cover those two types of stories. Is this podcast being sponsored by Channel 4? Is <laughs> <laughs> this a means of trying to fight privatisation? What's going on No, Not at all, not at all, but <laughs> let's start there. The common denominator between us is Channel 4 News. So let's, I'm trying I'm, I think. I think that there is a certain format that Channel 4 has that other mainstream news broadcasters don't have. Obviously, it's an hour, it's an hour long. It's still kind of following a magazine-based format, which means more time than certainly BBC One or ITV. And then obviously it has a slightly different public service remit historically, mm. um, the channel and therefore the, the news itself. So I think that that in itself gives or allows a, a different kind of take. Would I have been able to get given five, six minutes to turn MPs quotes into a draw song at BBC News, news, this news at six or news at 10? I would doubt that. Um, they might they might disagree, so I think that that structure of the program enables a slightly different uh, take the length of the program, specialism, the public service remit. Um, so I think that that makes it a kind of a place that gives you maybe a level of agency that is maybe missing in other places. Mm. But at the same time, you know, I've never worked at Sky News. I've never worked at. Um, the news at six, news at ten. So, I might go there and say, "Oh my God, this whole time I was living in chains." But I think, I think, <laughs> I, think I, I, I think, I think that's unlikely. But um, yeah, I think, I think that also, you know, it's also about, I guess, the culture of a newsroom as it's led by kind of leadership, and these things can always change. So you never really know you don't really know for how much longer your particular style or take how much long how much how long that that how long that lasts for things change mm -hmm. the program could be cut to an hour to 30 minutes could change could change to 45 minutes they might want to change up the vibe you know you never know so mm -hmm. i don't know it's 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 the interesting question but i do think that 
I do I do think that my interests um, and the kind of things that I'm interested in in pursuing and even outside of Channel Four News, I guess in my um, book as well that 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 that, um, that that is out. I think they're quite particular. And right now they they um, I think right now those pursuits and the pursuits I do at Channel Four News, there is some kind of alignment between them. So we'll get to the book in a minute, but. As journalists, we all, I guess, have a reason as to why we do what we do. My area is predominantly sport. I'm turned on by sporting moments and sporting excellence, but also how sport can be used for good beyond its arena, but also shine a light where possible on where sport is failing the wider world and where it's not having the impact it should. I, I enjoy trying to tell those stories, and as well as the, the great moments of England winning a semi-final in the Euros, but also the kind of more important stuff of, you know, sexual abuse with young girls who were young swimmers and by their coaches, and why that's important and, and the wider context of that. For you, what is your job as a journalist? What do you see as your role in the field of journalism? I largely think that my role largely is to... I guess to tell the truth, but also recognising that that's the truth as I see it. Um, there's an interesting relationship, right, between facts and truth. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not related. Um, in the sense that there is the truth of a thing, right? The idea that's driving it, what is actually happening, why it's actually happening. And then there's the facts of, like, the numbers behind that thing. And so... I think, for, I think my role really is to tell the truth and to find the truth in, I guess, the facts. Um, and I think that the pursuit of journalism or impartiality is more about the spirit of which you do kind of journalism, trying to be almost unaligned, unaligned to the the end goal. So, for example, in some of the, in my certainly in my book, I would say that I critique things and movements that I, you know I care about and I think are important, but they still require critique. Um, there are people, there's critiques of I guess individuals who I might even like, but it's because I feel like that's that's important, and I think that a part of doing journalism in many ways is like. You have to be prepared to have no friends. Mm. You have to be very much prepared just to like piss people off um, if you're in pursuit of the truth. And, and does that? And sorry to cut you. Does that also does that pierce into black culture and the black community? I.e., you might have to tell some home truths about your own people. Absolutely. That actually, absolutely. Ideally, wouldn't want to reveal, but because you're a journalist, that first and foremost is what you're yeah, going to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with that within reason. Mm. I, I don't. I think that you. I don't. There's a, there's a certain type of person. I think who doesn't quite maybe understand maybe black life and maybe they can be more hostile with what it is that they say we're telling the truth about this community but actually there's maybe that, that truth is missing some nuance but I think that in terms of being able to report on things um, and critique things even within the community that you're in I think that that is important because mm. um, the irony the, the end goal is supposed to be kind of uh, I guess the correction of the issues that you're highlighting are not quite working or they're kind of wrong. It's a problem because you want to you want that to be recognised. So no, I think I think that part of part of journalism is just like 
being, pre- being prepared to, to be piss pe- to piss people off, but mm. being provocative, not overly provocative for performance sake. And I think that in broadcast, there is a lot of performance, mm. you know, it's television as well. Mm. It's like, you know, you, you're going to go and doorstep somebody, <laughs> they're not going to ask the question, but there you are shouting questions. Mm-hmm. And then there is a performance element to it as well. But, you know, I think that but fundamentally, you're you're writing the kind of I guess to be cliched that like first draft of history, so it's important to try and find the truth of what a thing is. How has journalism for you changed from when you entered it to to where it is now, and where do you see journalism going in the next eight to ten, fifteen years? I think now a lot of journalism. I mean, even I think that a lot of the trends that exists now had already started eight years ago. And I guess that's like far more kind of influence of people who are not necessarily trained or even, I guess, even engaging more critically with how it is that they curate and present and verify information um, and discourse now becoming more actively prominent in the dissemination of news and information and discourse and journalism based uh, content to mm. use that word <laughs> so i think i think i think right now it's a very kind of congested space and i think that lots of people are engaging in publishing material but without necessarily going going through the process of self scrutiny and verification that we do in our day to day lives obviously when you put out a broadcast on t- tv there's a whole process regulated by ofcom all manner of things that go into just making sure that you have pursued this story with if not rigor and certainly you know the saying uh, uh, integrity and accuracy um and that you're not putting out anything that that is wrong or misleading and you know not to say that people who work in mainstream media don't get it wrong like they get it wrong all the time but it's that there is a process but actually the majority of people who publish now don't go through anywhere near that process I think that has created a bit of a wild west in terms of discourse and in terms of truth itself in whatever it is, just becoming kind of irrelevant and secondary to just content. And I think I think that that the sheer number of actors now is significantly higher than eight years ago. You, when you, you used the word content the first time about a minute ago and you kind of emphasised the word content and you almost did air quotation marks, I think the word is, is, is the word content almost a difference in the problem in that it's kind of got a negative connotation. Content is seen as something you just put out because you want to get, you want to grow your numbers or grow your brand. And that is diluted what journalism actually is. I I don't see journalism as content. It's funny because sometimes I might post some videos from, you know, TV or news report on Instagram or whatever. Some people are like, oh, I love your content. I'm like, whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa, 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 buddy, slow down. This ain't content. Um, and is that the issue? People blur the line between content and journalism. I mean, if we're being crude, it's like media content, right? So, but I think I think for me, it's like it's the idea of what a thing is. Journalism is rolls with a, a level of truth finding and fact finding and news gathering, and there's a whole process that goes into that. In my opinion, content has a slightly different ambition. Mm. Um, as I guess ideological ideas the ideological idea of content and the ideological idea of journalism of course if you put it on tv or you know it's in its raw form it is 
a format and therefore it's content. But in terms of the 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 the, the, the motivations behind them, I think that there's that there's a difference. Um, you know, or that, that's what I would say as a journalist who maybe <laughs> the the space is becoming more I don't know competitive or whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're just, maybe we're just, we're pole clutching. No, no, won't somebody think of the journalism? <laughs> but no, I do. To get I, over ourselves. A I do. Bit. But no, you know what? No, I think I think that. Certainly in my book, I look at, to some extent, the misinformation and untruths that develop by people effectively chasing, I guess, clicks and, and growth and a media persona. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that I'm not personally interested in celebrity. Um, for the most part, my Instagram was like private mm -hmm. before I had my book out and I had something to sell. Um, I try to dial, I kind of dial, dial down a lot of my use on Twitter. Um, but I think that micro celebrity and the possibilities of that online have enabled people who are aggregating and sharing and disseminating any idea that appeals to a particular bias of a community to obviously build up. And you know, the Sun and tabloids have always done that. But now the sheer magnitude of people who are doing that now. Uh, creates a kind of industrialization, I guess, of bad faith. So, okay, don't don't worry. You're doing that thing in interviews that people often do when they're selling something that they're they're conscious of the time and they want to get their plug in for their product before they run out of time. We're gonna we're gonna get to the book. Don't worry. We're gonna get. We're you gonna. Know what? I, wasn't, gonna I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't even doing that. If I was, if I was doing that, I would have said buy, get rich, or like try and get it all goods to bookstores. I, I got two I would, more I would, questions. I would have said that. So don't worry. I wasn't even plugging the book. There. We've got two more questions before we get to the book. First one is, have you ever done a story, Simeon, that has made you cry? Listen, you didn't say we we're going to get vulnerable in this podcast. If that's on, the case, man. I would have asked for a fee. Come on, man. But, um... <laughs> oh, is that, that coming back? <laughs> come for charge? <laughs> yeah, exploiting people's emotions for content, manipulative behaviour. What is going I'm on ask, I'm just asking questions. Um, yeah, I've done stories that made me somewhat emotional. The thing is... Not that emotional cry. Yeah, maybe. What was the story? I'm trying to think. I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent... The reality. I think there. I think there. There. There was some heartbreaking stories. I remember I, spoke, I interviewed a family who lost a son to knife crime, and they were just like really amazing, close knit family, like super close. And then they were just sharing the loss. Uh, he was even a. I think was he a twin? I think he was a twin. Um, and then yeah, and then they had this hole in the family picture, like literally. Yeah, they were talking about that. That was very. That was very, very emotional. Um, what else? I mean, yeah, I think, I think, I think I've definitely done some emotionally provocative stories. Um, and there was another one as well that I can recall the feeling, but I can't quite re recall the story. Um, I wonder what that was. Maybe it'll come back to me. I, I think, did, uh, yeah. I think it's important to hear for people listening to hear that journalists, you know, do these stories. It's very rare in my field of sport where I do a story that makes me cry or emotional. I've got emotional about other people's stories, but myself. But I think it's important that people hear that you, journalists you mean, aren't you, you, monsters. You, you, you mean you weren't crying when Arsene Wenger left Arsenal? Listen, I was. I was crying with the tears of joy, Reggie, and you were there at the time. So no, <laughs> you, we both remember that. Um, at the point of recording. We are a few weeks ahead of the, this year's BAFTAs. You were editor for Channel 4's Back to Front uh, 
today, the Channel 4 um, episode that day. So when this comes out, hopefully, if you're listening to right now, you're a BAFTA award-winning editor. Um, because we don't know the result of that at this point. How similar a moment was that for you, the programme, and the industry? Black to Front? Mm. Or Black to Front, our news programme? The news programme, sorry. How much of a... Sim- what, the initiative as well, we're talking? I guess initiative, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How seminal a moment was it? I mean, was it a seminal moment? First of all, start start with that. The thing is, you have to remember, right? There's a lot of history. Probably in this country, is that we are in a constant state of amnesia where we literally just forget everything that happens. Like Channel 4 has a history of specialising in minority-based programmes. So to add context, people people don't know, sorry, just a bit bit of context. Channel 4 did uh, last year... So so, so there was another day called Black to Front, and the idea was that everybody who was on screen that day, regardless of it was advert, was to be black, and it was to highlight the absence of black people in, I guess, television. Mm -hmm. That's a, there's a nuance to that in, in the reality that I would argue that black people are very much overrepresented in the imagination of the public because we're so prominent in dominant areas of pop culture, whether that's music and sport. Mm. Um, but we're actually absent in positions of power in elite industries, whether that's finance, whether that's media. Um, uh, who is the most senior black person at Channel 4, including the news? Who is mm. the most senior black person at the BBC? I mean, like, you know, like, we're few and far between despite our prominence in the public's imagination. Um, and so the inequality, the inequality is really over power and resource and distribution as opposed to visibility. So there's irony there. It's interesting. Anyway, so the day was supposed to, I guess, a look at where there were an absence of kind of black talent, I guess, theoretically, you know, where we work. Certainly, I can't think of any black senior editorial figures. And I can't think of them as editors, or deputy <coughs> editors, or commissioners. I can't I can't think of them. Um, and I haven't seen them in the building. So I guess it was that, that level where, it, it, interestingly enough, that some of the highlights of absence was, but of course, if you're watching the programmes, you know, you see Mo Gilligan, or you know, you see Kevin. You people, you see people who are or on screen and you know, who are visible and so forth. Um, and so then the question then is that if you have this day where everybody on screen is going to be black to highlight this inequality, what does the news look like? Is it just the regular news with regular black faces? My thought was like, yo, that's boring. Like we already do this anyway. We already kind of cover the news. If you're a black reporter, or whatever. I'm not interested in that. So if that's what they want, cool. I'm booking my annual leave now. Um, but I was like, you know what, actually, I'd, I'd rather use this day as an opportunity to create a program, which for me can capture the zeitgeist. And if you watch this program in 10 years time, 20 years time, 30 years time, it gave you a sense of what this year, this era was like, what were the issues? What were, what was the conversation? What was the mark on, on, I guess, Britain, but from a black editorial perspective? Um, and so for me, it was about creating a program 
that was seminal in its own right outside of the kind of Black to Front initiative, um, which largely, I think, was a success in terms of what was produced. And then it highlighted that there is a lot of uh, talent, but I knew that we knew there was talent. And the talent, ironically, is kind of thriving in the independent sector, I guess in the influencer sector. It's thriving in those spheres. And in many ways, it's like, it's the success of those realms which TV is desperate to capture for its own survival. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, who was really the one seeking opportunities is a, is a good question to ask, but that's enough for us and one for another day. But um, anyway, so it was about kind of creating that. That was always what I wanted um, to do with the programme. And so even in the programme, there's a trajectory in which it's like Britain passed, starting with Britain's kind of past, but through an active conversation about the Benny Bronzes. In the middle was like the black elite and what they tell us about this moment. And then the last piece was like Britain's future, the kind of the kind of fall of the union with, I guess, the massive cleavages that are taking place and falling along the lines of um, nationalism, you know, but also kind of uh, future questions over who this country is and the cleavages that exist. And obviously Scotland want their independence and we've left the European Union. So it was that, that was, that was effectively the idea at the heart of the programme, but from a black kind of perspective. Um, and I think that obviously, you know, it was well received, um, created huge kind of headlines, just to, just the stories themselves. Mm. So I, I think, I think that the, the programme itself was seminal and that you can watch it in five years time, 10 years time, even now, you know, you watch it back and it still feels quite present. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. And that, that was really the ambition mm. um, to kind of transcend news and capture the zeitgeist, which is what I think news journalists are supposed to do. Um, you know, Back to Front is an interesting one. I, I read, um, I was reading, I guess, the draft, first draft of a kind of history book, particularly about black uh, gay activists in South London. Um, by a writer uh, called uh, Jason Okende. And it's interesting where he was talking about some of the programming that was coming out in the 80s, recording kind of black life and things of this nature um, on Channel 4, which obviously had a very particular remit and has a particular history. And so Black to Front as a thing, for me, is that kind of... it. It's a part of a tradition of what a broadcaster like Channel 4 was set up. Mm -hmm. to kind of do and address and be alternative and engage with that and stuff like that. So even when it's is, is presented as something that's quite wild, I would say it's actually in keeping. It's actually in keeping with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was, it, 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 was, it was an interesting, um, it was an interesting programme. I guess people have criti critiqued it for kind of being tokenistic or whatever. Um, well, I guess the proof's going to be in the pudding going forward now. If it was tokenistic or if actually it was a start or something, I, I just want to say the kids say, "Give you your flowers or whatever, you know, give you your, your dues." And Serena, who's in the room producing this podcast, also worked on that. Everyone else that worked on that program, I watched it and I, I was so proud. I actually didn't get a chance to be on it because I was in. Tokyo for the Paralympics. And you I were like, well, listen, Tokyo, <laughs> I don't need this. I wanted to work on it. No, I, was, I, I wanted yeah. to work on it. I had some big things coming, but I, had to, I, got, I, I, got, I got called elsewhere. But I watched it and I thought to myself, this isn't just a black news program with black people. 
this actually could stand alongside any news program. There was, and the variety was dope. There was a sports story. I think um, Zara did Emirati Khan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, it was, it was, you, you did the program in Bristol at, uh, was it a museum? No, it was, at the, it was basically at the Bristol Beacle, which used to be called the, Co the Coasted Hall. There you which go. Which was named after the man, the statue was dragged into the, That's right. the slave, the there, slave there, there was a dope film done by, by Kemi in Nigeria. There was a, there was a, you broke a story on the royal family. It was a, it was a news program that was, that was just dope. It just happened to have all black people working on it. And I just watched it and thought, this is so, f it's, it's exciting, it's, it's varied. I think Aisha um, and Kemi presented it really well. It, it just, it, it was it's just a really good program. So I want to say to yourself, Toby and all the team, um, you should be very, very proud. I hope people, people are hearing this podcast right now. You are BAFTA award winners. <laughs> I, 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 I think Listen, you guys deserve it. I, so think, I, think the, I think the likelihood is that ITV will be collecting their possibly, a million possibly. gong of the year. Possibly, but, but, but it was irrespective. But we'll take it. We'll take, we'll, we'll take the number <laughs> Nation gets to go to the, to the party. In, 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 indeed. Um, I know you got to go. So I want to just get to the book now. So that is probably the single biggest thing in your life at the moment. Um, oh, you're giving me a look. Is, it, is, that, is that not a fair... I mean, it's, 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 the, it's taking up a, t a lot of time, even though it's published now. But So the, so the book is about... Correct me if I'm wrong, I've got the book and I've started reading the book. Um, I think about 10 or so, maybe less pages in. Is that but it? I've just, I, mean, I, only, I only kind of got to it. I'm a slow reader and I got reading to it. <laughs> Where are we now? Today is Monday. Started on Thursday. Um, it's about the influencer economy and how people in the last what decade have used social media as a as a currency for for growth in the in in their own personal or business world. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, of... I mean it's it's interesting. I mean every time someone asks the question, I ask the question differently. But oh, uh, it's like <laughs> brilliant. I mean, really, this is a book for me, which is. About what's it called? First of all, we'll tell the people what it's called. It's called Get Rich or Lie Trying mm -hmm. Ambition and Deceit in the New Influence Economy. Really, this is a book about modern work and about, I guess, the post millennial generation who are living, growing up in a world where they have huge ambitions of being told that you know all you have to do is go to university, get education, and you can achieve the trappings of middle class life, but how the actual economic consensus has shifted against them for very different reasons, uh, certainly post-financial crash in terms of real wages for graduate labour is down, housing is up, you can't own unless you come from kind of effectively wealth in major cities. Um, and what it means then to achieve this this completely, uh, this, com this completely unattainable sense of what you should be achieving. And we, we always talk about things like imposter syndrome but there's just, there's just a huge amount of pressure that young people are under. Um, when I say young now, even under 40, just to just to be a success, whatever that means, um, because of all the things that we're exposed to and tapped into online and on socials. A lot of it being kind of a mirage. And then how basically social media has stepped in to promise to fill that void. But actually how there's a darker side to that and how actually the majority of people who are supposedly influencers or basically digital workers, actually how they're more likely to be exploited, fall into pyramid schemes, um, or some cases have the worst parts of that ecosystem effectively just take advantage of them. And that's even before you get to that fraud. And then I put that in the context of, I guess this, kind of moment in which there is like a real gold rush among investors in Silicon Valley to kind of invest supposedly in like the next big startup and talent 
but how that um, world, which arguably some people believe works by the rules of a kind of Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme, um, how that world, that world is actually closed to the majority of people. And so everybody else now, they basically got a hustle in the, on these platforms um, and what that really looks like. And then what's, what's, that, what's that really costing us? And so the book is kind of like quite an easy... Some people who have read it, critics have said it's got like a TV documentary style vibe. I would say that is inaccurate. Mm. Say. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite an easy book to read. And I think with social media influencers, we're seeing how that can propel people to become stars and cross over to TV. And there's examples of that. Yeah. I guess the downside, because I came to your book launch, I wanted to ask the question, but I didn't get a chance. Uh, one of the downsides, I think, to social media generally is an example that I think we all saw recently with the passing of Jamal Edwards and the, the, the evening that it was going around that he had passed, everybody seemed to want to be the first person to kind of break the news that Jamal Edwards had died. And I think that that links to the social currency of, I if I get this out first, I'm going to get the most amount of likes, retweets and, the, the, and social the, currency. The, 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 the irony of that is I agree and I disagree. Go on. I believe that there was an, uh, any kind of news right especially on twitter there is an element of i want to have the fire tweet i want to have the fire tweet that does the numbers and you know propels my propels me on this site the incentives the rewards that you know that drive it um in many ways that's I, I the people who i felt were most driven by that were actually the people who were critiquing that notion and, and then say you people are awful how you can you share this before Brenda Edwards and da, da, da. but a lot of the kind of people who were t sharing it beforehand I didn't get the sense that was their motive that that was their motive mm. it was more like wow this is shocking is this true what's this news and although people shared that without maybe a lack of consideration that actually let's just wait mm. and listen the way that a lot of those plat those accounts were were using social media, it, in many ways, it's not with themselves as a media brand, um, and so it was many of the people who were influencers and were using it as media brands who were then writing these tweets. You people are awful about what you said about revealing this news, but they were they were saying they're tweeting this before his mum made reveal the news. So if you really believe that, then. Why are you even talking? Mm. Just wait for the need to be confirmed, and then maybe you can mm. say that. Mm. So for me, it was it was it was it was it was it was classic kind of. It was classic. It was classic Twitter by which people, who are keen to, present themselves as the voice of moral authority, are actually the ones driven by the warps incentives. Um, mm. And you know, I mean, we the thing is, there's two elements to it. We all use these apps to communicate, and so they have a. They're a central or primary partner of human culture, uh, even down to people meeting their partners or whatever, where they kind of congregate, sharing of nude information. So there is so, so there is that aspect to it. And then there's, the, I guess, the industry that then propels people into micro-celebrity and then they use it and then they grow and then the rewards of that and the possibilities of that and then that becomes a form of work in itself. Um, what was the biggest thing you learned from writing this book? What was the thing you, in, in researching the book, writing the book, that you didn't know before you started writing the book? You have to read the book because, I, don't know, I mean, it's like the book is, in many ways, the book, a lot of books by the internet can be quite dry and it's about kind of getting all these like random facts and you put it in like, did you know that this company made this funny from this? And did you know? But the book is really about people online, 
trying to achieve their ambitions on the internet and failing or that costing them a lot or being exploited or pyramid schemes um and so in many ways it's about the it's about the inhumanity of this form of one of work in some cases mm-hmm. so you know i interviewed a man who makes an income being paid to be racially abused for example so you you know his followers who come from kind of alt-right by, by alt-right parts of the community will pay him five dollars ten dollars to call him the n-word um and then you, i speak to him how did he get here and he talks he speaks about being homeless and living on skid row and all these kind of things and you know why this form of work why why he does it and how it compares to the other form of work and then it's like then it's looking then you're looking at then you're engaging with influencers on only fans and you're engaging with all these different types of kind of influencers who we don't think of as influencers like the whole crypto scene and nfts people think of that as some financial wizardry it's just influencer hype it's an influencer-led economy primarily about building hype around these things so that people invest in them so that you see a transfer of wealth from late adopters to early adopters that's all it is it's pure influencer culture um and so it's like um it's not like oh we found this great company and you know in 10 years time it's going to be producing 60 percent of our electricity invest in it now because it's going to be so significant and you want to put money into that company growing it's like hi i'm this influencer this cool this is really cool you should own it you might your value might go up it doesn't really do anything but you know everyone's going to be getting involved in it so you know be a part of it it's just pure hype and speculation um and so that is a world of, so it's it's i guess it's about what does value look like what does meaning look like and it's asking these kind of questions um, not necessarily answering it but just posing it via these people's stories mm-hmm. and so in that sense it does have a documentary kind of vibe um okay and all, the, all, all the all the other little nuggets and facts that I, that I picked up along the way i sprinkled in there so where, i would say where can people buy the book is it all, all, yeah, all bookshops online all that i would say you're most likely to see it in waterstones or foils mm-hmm. um waterstones or foils i would say this is a, this is a podcast that I want to be, I guess, aspirational for listeners. I want them to kind of, uh, you know, really those that want to penetrate one of the three areas we're focusing on: journalism, sports, and music. Where obviously journalism and media. What would be your advice to somebody who is looking to enter journalism slash media in twenty twenty two? Because I I think the way that you would enter journalism. 10, 15 years ago is maybe different to now. What would your advice be to a young person, or in fact, anyone? That's like, I want to be a writer, I want to be a journalist, yeah. What would be your advice? If you want to be a writer, go and read books. A lot of people want to go and, and write, but they don't even read. Um, they don't know what is out there. Um, and that is always a red flag to me, if you want to write, but you don't read. Um, so go and read. If you want to be a journalist, this, this, I think it's actually been the same, right? Mm-hmm. Similar, Lots yeah. of people want to curate media identities and then that creates opportunities and work in a platform. And, you know, that is a route. But really, if you want to be a journalist where you're driven primarily by story, then you just got to go and... You always have stories to go and sell. Just sell you, you basically sell stories and trade access. That's basically it. You find something that's interesting, you get the access, and then you trade it and you sell it. That's really, in its pure form, what will always give you an avenue into the place. And then from there... You, you you go so I think I think that's key and I think a lot of minorities interestingly enough when they especially when they come from non-traditional backgrounds 
Um, they haven't been to particular grammar school or private school or Oxbridge or whatever. It's like, and they don't kind of meet what the industry says a talented person looks like. It's usually an event or an avenue where suddenly the newsroom looks at itself and says, we don't have somebody who can go in, get this person or knows this person who can mm. do that. Mm. And then they're brought in. Mm. And so when I think of some of the people who I know who are definitely from non-traditional backgrounds, they came in, they were, they came in, for example, when the dominant story maybe was the story when the big concerns around Islam and jihad and all these kind of things, they were trying to find people like that nature and had those kind of connections. Huge influx then of, of I guess, non-traditional uh, journalists suddenly mm. uh, given space in, in newsrooms. Um, and then when that story changes, you know, you're present, so you've got that experience. Likewise, when there's riots, suddenly there's blows of black journalists. Mm. And I think I remember Gary Young saying, I think, that that was an opportunity for him. Maybe that was Stephen Lawrence. It was either Stephen Lawrence or it was uh, the 85 riots being an avenue for him. Um, and I think that was also, in my experience, certainly post 2011 riots. So I think that it's like, is the access and um, it's the access and the stories, having those things always to, to, tr to, to, to trade and effectively to do journalism around mm. um i think i think i think that's a that, that's a thing but it doesn't have to be so linked to identity either your identity if you are interested in niche things then those are things that you can always pitch and i think i think it's better to do that it's better to have something to sell and trade than to be like oh can i have experience mm. everybody wants experience but mm. it's like if you have something then that's a bargain what you bring to the table indeed um the future of journalism that's a quote simeon brown um, and BAFTA award winner. I'm going to put it out. I'm, I'm putting <laughs> well, so, what are you going to do now I'm, when the ITV win? And you've got a podcast to put out. You know, I'm, put, I'm putting it out there. I'm putting, I'm, I'm putting it out there. What are you going to do, yeah? It, uh, BAFTA nominee. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can do an edit. Can't be surreal. We can do a little remix. Um, future of journalism. That was a quote from Jon Snow. Um, I thought that was powerful. Um, I love that. What did you, what, just briefly, what did you, what was your reaction when you heard him say that? Jon Snow? Mm was my reaction. Mm -hmm. It was like, uh, John's good for a quote. <laughs> Thank you, John. I can use this now. Thank you. I can eat. I can, I can pay some bills. <laughs> I can pay bills now. Thank you, John. I'm going to be I'm gonna be living on this for the next 30 years. I'm going to be 50 years old saying John said I was the future. <laughs> Listen, Timmy and Brown love. Big up. Thank you. Uh -huh.